Welcome to the Frontline Conversations podcast, a platform that discusses issues around public policy and current affairs. We can't wait to share insights that matter to you. Are you ready to have the conversation? This is Frontline Conversations. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Frontline Conversations. My name is Calvin Mato, and I'm joined by my colleague, Mr. Zamokwa Chesom Shaba. And in this episode, we are joined by Mr. Wan Vilesishov, who is the agriculture, an agricultural economist and also the head of agribusiness research at the Agricultural Business Chamber of South Africa. And today we are going to have a conversation with him regarding the state of agriculture in South Africa and also, like most co- sectors in our country, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected the state of the sector in the country? Mr. Sobo, welcome to Frontline Conversation. Thanks for having me on. Yes, uh, so let's get straight into it. Uh, let, let me take you back to last year, 2019, when the Presidential Advisory Panel on Land Reform released its report on the 28th of July. In, in, in that report, they made a number of, of recommendations, such as including uh, amending the constitution to clarify the issue of land expropriation without compensation in some instances. And the large, a large chunk of the budget available for land reform being focused on subsistence farmers and smallholder farmers, and some of that money going to medium and large scale commercial farmers. So based on those recommendations, what, what are you, some of your perspectives on, on that report from the land reform panel? Thanks, Kelvin. Um, actually, I was one of the authors of the report. Yeah. And um, how we put out uh, the, the comments, we're, we're not entirely in, in that way. So this is how it happened. Uh, we, we're starting on, on a land reform panel and um, the objectives that were there was to say, let's try to come up with a plan that will accelerate land reform in South Africa. Yeah. And the second point of that was the question of saying, in whatever we do then, we ensure that on the agricultural side, there is some expansion, increased activity, job creation, and all of those things. So as we were thinking about uh, the, the, the acceleration of land reform, we offered a number of, of, of solutions there, which were the issues around establishing the land reform fund, making sure that the land that the state has already accumulated is distributed to people, um, opening up the land donations policy so that the farmers and the, and the companies and the individuals who want to donate land they can have the mechanism to be able to do that. So there was a menu of solution and the other things that I didn't mention here. Then on a point of the uh, constitutional side, mm-hmm. obviously one in terms of reference of the panel was that if the constitution is to be amended, under what conditions or, or how exactly should that be done? And as we were writing the report, there was a parallel process which was happening in parliament, which was the section 25, um, panel, which was dealing with the wording of that. So there were all of those now, even though we started relatively early, but it ended up being two concurrent processes that were happening. So what the panel was really saying about 
Section 25. Yes, was important, but not as the people that were sitting there looking at Section 25. I would say the panel's work was more giving on a broader policy perspective on a land reform. And in all of the things that we, we, we had uh, suggested there, we began to see some of those implemented. And obviously, the other issue was around the beneficiary selection process, which is mm -hmm. the question which I think many South Africans ask themselves that who benefits from land reform? How are those people actually gets to be selected? And then we needed to bring a bit more light on that and also have preference for young people and preference for women um, in the process, which is the point that you were referring to. And I think that in those pointers and closing line on, on this particular point is that we have now began to see uh, some bit of a movement in there in a sense that there is a land reform uh, policy donation that is out. And just before the pandemic, uh, work was underway on that, already available for public comments. And also, there is a beneficiary selection criteria, which the Department of Agriculture, Rural Development and Land Reform has already put out for people to comment on that, the public was. So there are some certain policies that actually came out of that, but I think there's still a lot of room moving forward. For example, the land reform fund is one of the key things yeah. that would be possible because that enables us now to collect resources from private sector and those will merge with the government resources on being able to buy land from the open market system and that obviously enables that the sector is still on, on equal footing so section 25 wasn't really one of the key thing of that there's a lot yeah. of menu options that were covered so it, in your view do you think that government is really serious, serious about land reform in this country it, the government is serious about land reform, Calvin, because the fact that all of these committees have been put in place um, speaks to that, but not only that, in the sense that we must not take the failures of the past as yeah. the lack of success. We, we will have to look at those failures to say what made land reform not to be as a faster pace as what we would have desired, what can be improved to give us the desired results. And I think that the work that in part the panel was doing was beginning to respond to that. Um, suggesting that the government is not serious would be a suggestion that there isn't a seriousness about transformation, mm. dealing with poverty, dealing with unemployment. I think that the seriousness is there, but the thinking now should be to say, beyond planning and writing policies, how do we begin to make all of this to be actionable and benefit people and begin to attract investments and deliver to the communities? That's where uh, the, the, the thinking should be. Hopefully, uh, post the pandemic, those are things that can begin to happen and people can begin to see the fruits of all of these discussions that have been going on forever. Yeah. You, you're mentioning the issue of uh, the um, land reform fund. And uh, I, uh, if, if I remember correctly, uh, this is one of the recommendations that were not initially supported by cabinet. Um, you will correct me if, if I'm wrong. And then uh, there were other recommendations that were not uh, supported. I mean, including, for instance, the, the review of the Office of the Valuer General and the proposal to introduce land tax. Um, if you look at those recommendations, what would you say um, uh, the impact of the rejection of some of those recommendations would be on the broader reform agenda of, the, of, of, of land? That's an important question, Zama, that you are raising. And uh, the, the point about, uh, about the Land Reform Fund, 
which is why, I mean, even if you one reads in my latest book, there's a bigger uh, chunk of energy that is dedicated on that story about the land reform fund, because I believe that we, we, we cannot miss the opportunity of pulling from resources that might be on private citizens. Mm. The mistake we tend to make is thinking about land reform as the issue of farmers, to say the farmers. There are people who might have benefited on land reform thing and sold their farms way back and moved to businesses that are in the urban areas. Perhaps maybe they are thinking of contributing to this, or there are South Africans that are much more fortunate in terms of the world side, and they are thinking this project of land reform is so important, and then they want to put some funds on it and making sure that it is delivered. There needs to be a vehicle for doing that. But more than that, I think also a vehicle to be able to say in the monies that we spend for agricultural rural development basis, why can't we look at those budgets and aggregate everything that is into one port and begin to deploy that capital in a much more uh, uh, intended way for particular projects that would be priority. And I think that land reform fund could play along uh, those lines. My hope is that as we begin to think about the post-COVID-19 um, uh, uh, recovery phrase, whatever that day is, uh, the issue of land reform fund could be looked at because it is still in official reports to say, okay, cabinet didn't approve, approve this, but can we still put it on the table? Some of the recommendations, obviously, those that you are raising, the issue of land taxes are some of the things that are always precious and very difficult to deal with some of the, all, all those issues. But I think it, it pays to look at in all of those ideas and see what's relevant for what time, because there's a lot of things that went behind that. Thanks. Okay. Uh, back to you, Con. Okay. Thank you, thank you, Wendila, on that. And on, on this fund, now there's this problem in South Africa of trying to reinvent the wheel. You have the land bank, for instance, that's in existence. So wouldn't that be some vehicle that government can look at in terms of distributing funds for, for land reform, particularly to those uh, previously disadvantaged farmers? No, you, you know what, Kel, the, the, when we were thinking about the land reform fund, we're not saying uh, necessarily establish a new institution. Yeah. The thing was that how do you begin to get money, uh, as I said, from private citizens, private companies, and all of those things, and then you will need to have a port. Ideally, where this will be held, the land bank was one of those institutions that we had wished because it is already a government institution. So we're saying if you establish this fund, um, those people already have the financial expertise than the governments and stuff. Then they would manage that fund there. But what will be clear for that pot of money is its uh, purpose. It will be clear that, okay, your goals and your objective is to do one, two, three, rather than other things that might have been on your balance sheets and your budgets and stuff. So uh, the, the idea was that the, the, the land bank will be an, an ideal institution to, to, to be able to do. So to do, to have this particular fund. And I mean, that's still the hope because we, we, those of us who have been thinking about this, we haven't given up on that idea. The difficulty of financing in South African agriculture remains one of the most fundamental issues, particularly for developing farmers and the young people who are trying to come to the sector. They, they really hitting the wall, a number of them on saying, where do they get the capital to restart their farming businesses? 
on on that the, the land bank is currently in in deep crisis and uh, from what i've read is is currently in need of government bailouts so based on what you just said uh does it need some sort of reform itself the bank itself or maybe we can use the existing model to try refine it or is it a management issue what what do you think is the problem with the land bank currently as it is if, if I could just, just, just before Mr. Shlomo uh, answers that, you know, because uh, I think the question that uh, uh, my colleague Calvin is asking is a very important one. Uh, there have been calls for the repositioning of, 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 of the land bank. Um, well, I would imagine that means uh, quite, uh, quite, quite a lot of things, positioning it in such a way that it is able to play its envisaged developmental role. It is able to continue um, um, being a, a, a critical bank that it has been. Uh, so, so what, what, uh, what I'm, I'm particularly keen in understanding from you, what kind of repositioning uh, would be would be appropriate uh, for the bank to to get uh, to, to get back on its footing? Yeah, uh, yeah, gentlemen, um, the, the land bank is um, is a member of the South Africa or South Africa's Agricultural Business Chamber, which is my employer. Agnes. Mm -hmm of policy we don't comment on individual um, matters of our members I will say okay. though that the the points that you are raising about uh, the importance of the land bank um, are, are valid um, in a sense that the financing side of farming in South Africa um, still needs some bit of a, a boost in them and as per whether now the sustainability of the bank or not I think you've seen the Treasury coming out um, of mm. the weeks saying that they will try to make sure that they assist the bank and one of the things perhaps maybe k1 can say is the fact that i think the problems of the bank are not as the other soes per se that one one we have seen but it ran into liquidity issues and then one would have to look back and say what caused those is it the bad management or is it some of the other issues that are outside the bank but in the south african economy that have in large part also weighed on that and I think it's largely the latter. But thinking about the functioning of the bank more broadly now, I think obviously if one reads the Land Bank Act of 2002, June 10, 2002, it speaks, it spells out issues of food security, but it also spells out quite clearly the role of the banks should play in terms of development, land reform, making sure those that were previously excluded uh, in, the, in, the, in the economy are included and all, all of that, uh, those issues. But then that will go back to the funding side to say, how does the bank get to be funded? And I think that is the, the, those that are in charge of it are thinking of uh, solving the current problems. Um, I can certainly tell you that they are thinking about also some of those, all, all those things. Yeah, that's all I could say on, on this particular matter. The bank is, is important, and I believe that it will remain an institution. Yeah, just a very quick one. I mean, I, I really appreciate the, the, the constraints that you have in terms of talking about the bank. But there's there, there an issue here about the business model of the bank. On the one hand, you've got it as a, on a, you know, running on a commercial basis, and then on the other, it's supposed to have this developmental role. And some people have said that uh, inherent contradiction uh, limits uh, the bank in terms of its ability to do what, it's, what, what it ought to do. I don't know if you will be in a position to comment on that, on the business model of the bank. I mean, that, that too would be one of the things that I, I don't want to intrude on those, but I would make a comment as a South African to say that mm. 
there are two mandates of reading from the act, which is outside there and publicly available to anybody else. But then that goes to the question of saying, how, how do they get funded? If they're raising all the money on the capital market, you can't expect them then to do more of the development and not be able to repay back their, their investors. If you want the bank to do more of the development, the government, who's a shareholder of that, will need to take do its part to avail the resources. And that's mm. part and parcel of where I was saying that thinking about the bank, you can perhaps maybe have an angle within the bank that deals with development and another angle within the bank that deals with the commercial one. Then the one that with development would be the one that would have to be largely funded by government. Perhaps things like the land reform fund, ideas like the land reform fund would also fill in if you were to be accepted under that developmental angle side and raise resources and make sure that it does it deals with that work but i think the slow course of transformation that the bank has faced it's not so much that it's a bank's reluctance to do that but i think it's more about how it's funded rather than rather than that yeah okay okay um <clears throat> okay okay no go, go zama yeah, uh, no, it's 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 it's, uh, it's understandable. Uh, th thanks a lot for that uh, very useful uh, insight. Mm -hmm. Now, I wanted to reflect you to help us reflect on the impact of uh, COVID nineteen, the pandemic, on the on the agricultural sector. Um, though government has made available uh, at some point, the minister of agriculture, um, Minister Togotitiza, mentioned one point two billion that has been made available. Um, as part of a relief plan for for farmers, um, what 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 has been the overall impact in your assessment of the COVID nineteen on the agricultural sector? You know, Zama, you are you are again asking another important question here because agriculture is one of those few sectors that were left to uh, or operate during the pandemic, um, as we all need food and everything. But obviously not at optimal levels. There were still, particularly on the market side, restaurants and all of those things that are very important for people like that are in the beef industry and vegetable side were not really operational. But in a large part, we were, operate, we were operating at least by the end of the first week of, of, of the pandemic. But there were certain subsectors, if you think about uh, the wine industry, you think about the floriculture, which is the, the flowers, you think about the cotton, you think about the wool, those are the sectors that were subsectors that were pretty much hard hit because of those closed on, on, on trade. But as we then proceeded going on to level four, those were, were opening up. So the, what I'm trying to say then in a context of that, you wouldn't see the impact being as massive as what you would see on the other sectors of the economy. And as best as we can tell at this point, it's very unclear to actually be able to quantify and say how much has that impact. Uh, some of our colleagues at the World Bank are actually thinking about doing the studies that begins to answer that. Now, in the 1.2 billion rands that the department availed, then the question gets to be asked to say, in the selection of who benefits on the beneficiaries, did we really select people that were hardest hit by the COVID-19? or did we tie it in with the developmental angle and assumed the difficulties brought by COVID-19? And I would think that that's the latter, the approach that was followed. Because if you were to do purely assessment of the financial cost of the, of the pandemic and say you are channeling funds um, on that way, I would say the effort that we have taken is not purely like that, that one, but saying the, the government was thinking more developmental side that's what they they, they, they took on, on, on that approach of, of, of distributing the funds. 
now, now all all farmers were do not qualify for this for this fund by by the minister. I can think of tobacco farmers, for instance. So how how does in your in your view, government think this 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 farmers will will survive because the tobacco sector, for instance, has some emerging farmers which are black and without with the tobacco ban on the site, without companies really buying the products from them, they are going to suffer and they cannot apply to government for 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 some relief funding. So, do you think the the way this fund is structured or the criteria used, do you think it's, it's fair? I mean, look, you have to think about the, the, the background during the conceptualization, Kevin, because yeah. one of the things that everyone was talking about in the midst of the pandemic was food. To say, can people have food? Can we be able to support those that can bring food on the table? Not those that, not, not, not the other value chains of, of, of the sector, which is why even if you were to look on that list, you will see that it's pretty much people that are on the food side of the issues. There is no wine and, and, and all of those things. But obviously, leaning towards more the developmental side of the department or on that. There, as far as the tobacco industry is concerned and, and, and all of those things, obviously those are some of the discussions that we are still having with the lawmakers to say, perhaps maybe we might have uh, looked at the criteria, not in a fair way, consider mm. these uh, relatively small farmers that are in the tobacco industry. Those are the discussions that are happening. And I think there has to be appreciation of the fact that the government hasn't disbursed all of the money in there. It's roughly about 500 million that has actually gone up, which means that a figure of roughly 700 million or less is still up there in the port to be thought about, about what interventions, who should be selected and all of those things. And I think we should be fair though to lawmakers yeah. because they make these decisions under <clears throat> pressure, unpredictable conditions, um, not enough data that is available for anyone, even those of us who are the keen watchers of this sector. Sometimes it's difficult to have all of the real-time data about what is happening. Then as they make decisions over time, they will make mistakes uh, and they will leave off some other areas. But now the important part will be to say, how open are they to engage once new information is coming up to say, hey, you have missed this subsector. These are the costs to the livelihoods. Perhaps maybe you can integrate this. And I think that's the important part that I'm hoping that they will be open to. But early indication in my engagements with them suggests that there is openness on engaging and reevaluating some of these things. And you have seen that with the regulations uh, when they were being reviewed over and over again. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, thanks. Um, if I could take you to the issue, which is a you know, very important issue of food security, um, especially at this time when uh, you know, there's, um, there are projections that people are losing, are gonna be losing their jobs and issues of affordability come uh, into the picture. Uh, it is said that grain production uh, the, this year is promising to be very good. Um, and the data that was released by, for instance, the Crop, uh, the crop Estimates Committee uh, showed that for the 2019-2020 uh, summer grains and oil seeds, uh, they are likely to improve by about 32% year on year, 217.5 million tons. Maize, uh, we are also looking at South Africa remaining a net exporter of uh, about 2.5 million tons um, for the 2020-2021 marketing year. Now, 
if you look at that at, at, at that projection, are we likely to see perhaps some uh, uh, prices of stable food decreasing and providing some relief to local consumers, especially the, the, the poor that are hardest hit at this time? Yeah, I mean, look, um, in as far as food, uh, food price inflation is concerned, we are comfortable. Um, I think that grain-related products, fruit-related products, you will see the rate of increases uh, on those, on those, on, on, on the prices of those products really softening um, over the coming months. We have already seen these prices, for example, from about a month ago, they are down by a thousand rand per ton. What that tells us is that in a space of about two months' time, we will see the products related to that in our shelves also showing a similar trend. And also on a fruit-related basis, we're beginning to see that. There are, however, some of the products that, for example, the eggs, um, we anticipate also around uh, beef, that prices might not actually decline as what we are expecting on a relatively large part of the product. And part of that is because of what, what happened last year, uh, for example, on the red meat side, whereby last yeah. year, red meat prices were in deflation. So in the following year, you would expect that the rate of increases in prices would be higher than the previous year. On the egg side, there's been this shock of everyone baking at the same time. And that yeah. also on in a bit of a, in a demand on that. But broadly speaking and looking on the basic products prices, we think that basket is actually going to soften and going forward. To an extent that, for example, the Agriculture Business Chamber of South Africa, Agbis, we forecast our food price inflation for the year at 4%. That's slightly higher than 2019, which was around about 3.1%. And the key thing that is pushing up that slight increase is what is coming up on the red meat, um, as I was saying. But I think in closing point, uh, Zama, the, the, the most important part, which uh, is going to be difficult for people, is the one that you mentioned, that a number of people are out of work. Those that are dependent largely on informal work, depend that largely also on the mobility of people. So with that mobility of people not being there and people's income actually having fallen off, what that means then that people who might see hunger, not driven by the fact that food prices are rising at a faster pace, but driven by the fact that there's a drastic fall in income level in the, in the buying power. And I think then the key interventions like the food vouchers that have been given to people and also food packages, are popping up slightly on the social grants were important intervention on softening up that blow. But I think that's what I'm worried a lot about than actually the supplies. We are at a place now where we will be supplying also the, the African continent uh, and also beyond the continent on food because we export overall roughly half of what we produce in value terms. And this year we have an idea in terms of the supplies. Just two um, follow up questions on that. Um, you know, when you're talking about South Africa, you cannot uh, uh, avoid the question of transformation, uh, broadly defined. Um, when you're talking about South Africa becoming a net exporter of, uh, you know, maize and so on and so on, there is, at a, should I say, on the face of it, uh, people who are likely to benefit out of that are your, you know, your established white uh, farmers. Um, what has been the involvement of black farmers in, 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 in the export of, of, of uh, let's talk maize, for instance? And, uh, and uh, how, how do you see uh, government balancing out or the country balancing out the, the, the need to um, bring in your emerging black farmers into the export sector? 
I think that one needs to look at it in, in two ways. When you are exporting, you are exporting because you have a glut of the supply in your local market. And the more you push that commodity out of your market to outside buyers, your prices recover. If your prices recover then because of that external demand, whoever is holding maize also benefits. So indirectly, the black farmer might not be the one selling maize to Japan, but when the market rebalances, if they are holding that commodity, they benefit in the same way as the white farmer. But in terms of the balance of production then, obviously the black farmers are still playing and it's a, a, a smaller role, less than 20% of maize in South Africa produced by, 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 by black farmers. It, it, with the statistics that we have, obviously that is not a good stats um, that, that we are having, but it indicates onto that. There has been though some improvements because if you look back at 1994 up until now, there's been a number of black farmers that actually have produced. Um, three years back, for example, guys in Matatiela and so, were some of the first black farmers to be exported maize to the Far East. Uh, their maize was consumed in Japan and they continue to participate on export markets. So there is progress, but obviously the progress is not at a desired rate. And I think that then for that progress to be at a much faster pace, it needs to link back to our initial discussions about the land reform. But I think when you're thinking about land reform, we need to be careful and not take a populistic view and have an appreciation that South Africa's agricultural sector is capital intensive. If you're going to do well, you're going to need money and investments to get into this. And once you have produced, you're dependent a lot to outside buyers having interest in your produce. That then means that whatever policy choice you are trying to push, make sure that you don't upset that balance of investments and the balance of interest on trade for your products. Because if you do that, you might end up like our neighbors up north, you end up like Venezuela's and all of those things. But again, I'm not using those examples as a boogeyman to say don't transform your organization. No, no, transformation should happen. But we need to discuss clearly about how yeah. do we do it in a much more uh, uh, realistic way. And that wraps up part one of Frontline Conversations with agricultural economist Wandile Sihlobo. Do keep an eye out for part two of the conversation as the dialogue continues. Keep your eyes peeled on our social media platforms.